0: Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today, I'm going to tell you the truth. The truth about what is really destroying jobs, what has been taking jobs from people for over 200 years, and giving us cheap t-shirts. Yes, I'm going to be talking about the rise of machinery. So what we talk about when we talk about the rise of machinery, especially in Britain, is called the Industrial Revolution. Now, if you had a little icon for the Industrial Revolution, it would probably be a factory with a bunch of smokestacks or some sort of, you know, urchin working at a textile mill or something. And that's true. Those things really do mark the Industrial Revolution. After the rise of factories in Britain, uh, Britain experienced a ton of stuff that it never had before, like smog and acid rain, which can just tell you how much coal they were burning to meet the demand of their factories. The Industrial Revolution, of course, is incredibly important because it gave rise to the way that we produce and consume everything. It created the modern economy, and I'm probably going to try to convince you of this over the next couple of months, it created the modern world. So let's start out with the common sense view of what the Industrial Revolution was. First things first, the Industrial Revolution happened in Britain. This is one of those things that is indisputable. Some people say it could have happened elsewhere, but it did happen in Britain. And the question is why? Well, the old story goes that it's because of a combination of a bunch of things. It's like this Goldilocks scenario. In Britain, you had people who believed in debate and freedom. They had a good climate of laws and property rights. They also had high wages and science. And what's more, they had genius inventors who were spewing out designs for new labor-saving machines all the time. And because of these transformational inventions that British inventors made and then British capitalists created, Britain started to make things in an entirely new way. They started to make things faster, cheaper, better than anybody else in the entire world, and the rest of the world caught up, and to a certain extent, history, modern history, is just about this process of catching up. And there's a lot true in this story, but it's also a bit of a caricature. One of the biggest things that's kind of weird about this story is that the Industrial Revolution is kind of not a revolution at all if you think that a revolution happens really, really quickly. In fact, the processes that we talk about when we talk about the Industrial Revolution happened over the space of, depending on how you're counting, 100 years, 30 years, 50 years. Anyway, it happened slow. And if you're looking at actual data about, you know, production or gross national product or, or any sort of metric that you might want to look at, this was actually pretty slow too. And also the Industrial Revolution didn't hit everybody. It wasn't like all of a sudden in 1830 every single British person who was working was working in a factory. There were still lots and lots of what we call handicraft industries even up until the 1850s. Remember in the 1850s, you know, there were more shoemakers than there were textile workers. We're going to be talking about the Industrial Revolution quite a bit So, I'm not going to try to discuss the precise origins of it. What I want to talk about today is its effects, particularly the effects that it had on work. Let's not think of a factory when we think of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, of course, factories were important, but that's not the only thing. I want to argue to you guys today that there's three big things that the Industrial Revolution did to change the way that things were produced and that is they made machines, they made extra energy, and they made, well, factories. So we'll go by them one by one. So let's first talk about machines. That might be one of the emblematic moments of the Industrial Revolution, and we can think about this by looking at the process of textile manufacturing. So the story of the history of textiles is for a really long time, people did it the traditional way, and then all of a sudden in the 18th century, there was a series of interlocking developments that helped all of the different parts of textile making get faster and cheaper the spinning jenny the mule the hand loom and one of the interesting things is they don't necessarily need an external power source to work These pushed a couple important developments. One is that cotton, which was easier for machines to work with, became much more important for Britain than wool, which was actually, you know, grown in Britain. You had to ship cotton from India or America or Africa. We'll talk about that later. The other thing is that it made clothing cheaper, and this was really important because at this time people didn't have a lot of money to spend so anything that got cheaper, especially a necessity like clothing, made people's lives better. Finally, this leapfrogging process of technological development, where one new industry is quickly supplanted by a more efficient other new industry, left many people behind. The classic example of this are the poor, poor handloom weavers. If you picked up a book about the Industrial Revolution and opened a page at random, I think that there'd be a pretty good chance that you'd hear about the plight of the handloom weavers. For a time, they were one of the biggest category of textile laborers, but with the advent of the power loom, which was, of course, powered, they suddenly stopped being more efficient and cheap, whom their entire way of life was doomed. This didn't mean that they disappeared. No, they stayed on in poverty and misery for a really long time. The next big part of this story is extra energy. And we can have another one of these emblematic processes of the Industrial Revolution as a symbol of this. And that is the development of the steam engine. The first steam engine was made in the turn of the uh, 18th century. So we're talking about, you know, 1700s. And it was, you know, really cool. It proved that you could do stuff, but it wasn't entirely efficient. The real time that the steam engine really becomes useful for work is in the 1770s, when a guy whose name you know, Watt, created the new, more efficient steam engine. I won't go into the technical differences that it has right now because it's kind of boring, but suffice it to say that this steam engine was actually able to do a ton of work. But it still wasn't the steam engine that you know from, you know, Thomas the Tank Engine or something. This was only useful in coal mining when coal was really, really cheap. They used it to pump water out of the ground. Once the patent on the steam engine lapsed, people started to tinker with it, and with a series of what's called micro-inventions made it increasingly efficient, which allowed people to start using it, you know, away from the place of production, away from the coal pit. People could now do stuff like, make railways or start to power other kinds of industry through coal but so let's not think just of machinery as being part of this extra energy revolution anything that you could use energy for became a lot cheaper and there were a lot of industries that were really important for british people that this affected you know brewing for example Beer got cheaper because parts of brewing requires you to boil large amounts of water, and when you get coal and cheap energy, that becomes much easier. Same with brick making, glass blowing. A ton of things became cheaper because energy became cheaper, not just machines. Our final important thing are factories. And why are factories important? Well factories are important because they allow for the division of labor which means that each person who's working can specialize in a particular task and as we know from our Adam Smith or from looking at a Ford factory when a person specializes in a particular task they get a ton more efficient which makes everything more efficient. The other thing about a factory that's important is that if you have these big gigantic machines that are fueled by coal, well, they're really expensive, and you want them to be running all the time. They're also really heavy, so they have to stay in the same place. So rather than, like in the old system, the machinery going out to meet the worker, now the worker had to go and meet the machinery. Of course, factories also made it a lot easier to discipline workers. You could watch them work and, you know, tell them that they were doing it wrong, or, more often than not, tell them that they weren't working hard enough. Another good example of this comes from our good old friend Charles Babbage, who you might remember from one of our first episodes on statistics. He was the guy who wanted to make a gigantic census of every single number on Earth. Well, he also wanted to apply these kinds of mathematical and computational systems to factories themselves. He dreamed up of the first computer, as you guys might remember, and he wanted to run factories the same way that he thought that computers should run. And in something that should not surprise you at all by this point, he developed a survey for this. He wanted to make a survey that he'd give to factory workers, asking a ton of important 19th century questions, like all of the possible processes that there were for producing a particular article, or possible defects of this article, possible waste. The weight of the article the weight of the raw materials the provision and repair of tools the cost and wear and tear of all machinery the number of processes and he expected people to fill this out and for it to change the world what's even crazier than babbage's survey is the fact of course that his vision of this kind of computerized factory is the vision of life that we all live in now, and it's part of the reason why people don't work in factories anymore, because the machines can do it faster and better than we can. And notice in all of these processes, it's not this instant revolution that happens that suddenly changes everything, rather it's a slow creep. But wait, I'm I'm missing something out, and I think it's actually quite important. Uh, So yesterday, I talked about the spread of global capitalism by saying that we can see it through the rise of machines, firms, and finance. But as I was thinking about it today, I realized I missed out on a really, really huge set of processes, and that's culture. I've been trying to think through all the different ways that cultural change happened to lead to the rise of global capitalism, but I, I haven't gotten to the end of it yet. But I just want to talk a little bit about how we can see how cultural changes are necessary for the story of the Industrial Revolution. And the important cultural change that I want to talk about is the rise of consumerism. So this doesn't seem too alien to us today. People buy stuff on the market, and we consume it. It's kind of fun. But it was only in the 18th century that a lot of people started to have access to a lot of goods on the open market. The reasons for this are because of increased agricultural productivity and because people were getting a new sort of long distance trade happening because of the opening up of the Americas. We'll talk about that later. What you need to know is that on the market in Britain, in the 18th century, there was a whole range of new consumer goods, China from China. Coffee from the Levant, tobacco from North America. All these things were things that people desired in their everyday life, and they started to be able to buy it. it. Without this sort of consumerism, without this driving need for people to buy these objects, you wouldn't have the demand that the factories and the machines and the new cheap energy were there to fulfill. And so this cultural story of the rise of consumer demand is as important to the story of the Industrial Revolution as Watt and his steam engine. And this new sort of world where you had a lot of cheap goods, where a scarf wasn't you know, a month's wages, allowed people to view themselves in new ways. Because industry was changing so quickly, and the world was changing so quickly, People started to see history and themselves as changeable rather than static. Also, new classes started to arise. You got the middle class, who oftentimes profited off of this consumer society, and you also got new rich people who had gotten themselves flush on entrepreneurial activity. This is, you know, the birth of the great, 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 great metaphorical grandfathers of Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates, nerds whose attention to science and detail and drive to create something new makes them rich and changes the world. But it also opened up a question. All of these changes opened up a really, really big question in people's lives. What was going to happen to the people who made stuff? Are we all going to become hand loom levers? Is our livelihood just going to be taken away from us by a machine? And it's not just about that, but it's about how these people viewed themselves. There's a difference in somebody working at home, in sewing stuff at home, and then somebody going off to a factory every day and doing it for their manager. But there was also a sense of new possibilities, especially for the working classes. And I'm gonna leave us with this quote from a writer, Hawk Smith, in 1835, when the Industrial Revolution was most definitely on its way. Here it is. When the steam engine was perfected, half the external distinctions of rank vanished, the new power rendering manufactured articles more accessible. But the effects of scientific advancement will not be branded by the cheapening of silks, calicos, and handwares. There is an intellectual machinery, a mental steam power at work, and still rising in its action, which renders education proportionally as cheap and as attainable to the man of small means as his clothing and his domestic apparatus." Here we see a vision of working-class life changed not just by the cheap goods of the steam engines, not just by the factories in which they had to work, but by the books that they were allowed to read, by the books that they could now afford because they were being made by steam engines and by coal-fired machinery. Thanks very much for joining us today at Making of a Historian. Uh, I have to thank Jonathan Lear for the theme music. I also have to thank Duncan Barton for the wonderful, wonderful art that graces our iTunes page. If you want information on either one of them, go to our webpage at historian.live. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us and review us in iTunes. It really helps. Also, share us on social media, especially the Facebook group Histori- making of Historian, which you can find by entering in the title of the podcast into Facebook. You should get there. Um, thanks very much for joining us, and I'll see you guys tomorrow.